All right, good morning, everyone. Let's uh, be finding our seats again. Shout out to those in our overflow room as well. We're glad you're with us. Trust those that needed prayer also availed themselves of our ministry team at the red carpet. Love the testimony from Ruth and just how God is continuing to move. At Five Stones, we really believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, we're not just worshiping a God of the past. We're worshiping a God of the present. And He is the same, and His power is the same, and His love is the same. So uh, it's a joy for us to continue to proclaim that message. Well, we are in the second to the last week of our series from the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we've had so much fun, so much joy uh, preaching from this book. It's the last historical book in the Old Testament, which speaks of God rebuilding the physical walls around the city of Jerusalem. And as we do each summer, we like to highlight testimonies from members in our church of how God has been working in their lives and relating it to our, our preaching theme. And so this morning, I'm really excited to have Linda and Jordy uh, to come on up, and they're going to be sharing their testimonies. So. Well, the first thing I want to do is to the first thing I want to do is to uh, show you the secret to a happy marriage. <laughs> okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> okay, that was our comic relief. <laughs> um, first of all, I'd just like to thank all the ones that have gone before us, all the ones who have had their testimonies in previous Sundays. Each and every one of you, I thank you for the honor of listening to your story, and I thank you for all the lessons that I received out of them. So I just want to honor all of you. For us, what we've done is we've divided our story into four parts. First, we're going to tell you the way things are right now. Then we're going to go into Jordy's story. Then we're going to go into my story. Then we're going to go into our story. And we wanted to start with the end in mind. It's a Stephen Covey reference from my business world. Jordy and I have been together for 27 years. We were engaged for 17 years and will have been married for 10 years as of September 27th. We have increased our faith in God, trusting God to lead our lives, and we support each other completely. We are very committed to each other and we seek out each other's company. We are each other's best friend. We attend church regularly. We pray each morning together. We have a conversation with God each morning, just the three of us. We participate in various programs in the church. The Freedom Session, we went through that a couple of times, both facilitating and participating. We do the Bible study programs for the last couple of years. We serve on the hospitality team. Um, we have taken a certified, we've become certified in a Christian couples mentoring program. We enjoy the fellowship of the women's and the men's groups. We participated in the water bottle uh, and prayer evening. And we had fun. Bernice promised we would have fun and we had fun. As well as it being very fulfilling. We volunteered for Friday night on front and sold Johnny Pops. We have only been in New Westminster for two and a half years, and we believe that God has brought us here, and I mean right here to this very church. 
We believe that God wants us here, and for us, this is our Psalms 23 reference, leads us beside the still waters. He restores our soul. He guides us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. We are continually growing in faith, and we want to help others learn as well. We feel that we have had a number of experiences throughout our lives that we have learned from, and these lessons, it is our mission to share them so that others may learn as well. Our prayer this morning is that we can be of service to you with the sharing of our lessons. Some of the lessons that we have extracted from the book of Nehemiah, which we identify with, is one, it's never too late to begin rebuilding. Number two, that relapsing into sin is always a possibility. Number three, no matter how often we fail, God is still waiting to lead us back to his way of life. Number four, prayer must come first, but it must be balanced with action. Number five, that you can't do it alone, that you need to seek help from others. Number six, that you need to repair the wall, the part of the wall where, we, where you live first, work on ourselves first. Number seven, create a safe environment to do your work. And number eight, find your own Nehemiah in your life, someone who will honestly tell us what needs fixing and who will stick close by to help us complete the work. And now I'll turn it over for Jordy's story. Hello, my name's Jordy. As a youngster, spirituality was a mystery to me. We did not attend church as a family. and went to church just on occasion, Christmas, uh, visiting relatives and so on. And it seemed to me that the people that went to church when I was young, um, there was a, a problem in that uh, they would do terrible things all week, then go to church on Sunday and then be forgiven and w with no conscience about, about it. That's, that's what I thought I'd learned from what the people that went to church. So I was really... Um, uh, negative towards church for a, a big part of my life. Um, my dad was a heavy drinker when I was young. He was either happy-go-lucky or on a torrent. It seemed like I would be punished for no reason. It got so bad that when dad would go off on me, I would go out and steal something and usually get caught so that when my dad would take the belt to me for stealing, that life would make sense, that it was okay now, that I, it, you know, it, it somehow just made sense to me. And um, I was very athletic and excelled in sports. I longed for my dad to come to my events. He would always promise to come, but rarely made the effort. Drinking and his friends seemed to be more important. My teenage years were pretty good, but everything I did revolved around drinking, which I thought was normal. I thought a lot about being a man at that point, uh, in, in my late teens, early 20s, about what it meant. And so I, what I did was I promised I would not make the same mistakes that my dad had made, and I had a fairly extensive list. At 27, I dated a young lady with a three-year-old son. I knew she wasn't marrying material, but I didn't care. She got pregnant, and both my mom and my grandma strongly suggested that we get married, so we got married. We were together for 11 years, from my opinion, she was an alcoholic, a compulsive liar. She was vengeful and lacked moral fiber. I remember this time was the lowest point of my life. When I, felt, when I left, I, I was suicidal. I had zero self-esteem. I felt hopeless. 
I basically gave up on life. I remember thinking, if I could white-knuckle life for the next 40 years and quietly die, then my suffering would be over. I tried counseling because I knew I was in trouble. He suggested Al-Anon, which I didn't know what that was, but it was a support group for people who had been affected by other people's drinking. I thought, hey, that's me. That's, for, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm the victim of someone else's problems. But it was a spiritual program, and at this point in my life, I was still dead set against God and religion, but I agreed to attend at my uh, counselor's request. And the meeting that I found was perfect. It was basically a support group. There was no God, there was no prayer, there was, they were way off track. It was just basically a support group for people that had a similar problem. And, I'd, uh, and then all of a sudden, Someone said, no, we've got to start following the rules. So they brought God back into the picture and prayer and all those other things. So I immediately bailed, even though it, it had really been helpful, helpful to me. I moved to Calgary shortly after. And when I got around to thinking about another relationship, I wanted to make sure I didn't repeat the same mistakes as before. I met Linda about a year after moving, and, and I thought that she was the exact opposite of my ex. Another year down the road, Linda's daughter was diagnosed with a drug and alcohol problem. She was 13 years old, and our life seemed to unravel. We ended up seeking out long-term drug treatment with a program called ARC, Alberta Adolescent Recovery Center. It was a long-term 12-step AA program for the client and Al-Anon for the rest of the family. And here I'm faced with the dilemma. Do I bail or do I stick around? And I was just beat up again after feeling some recovery, and then now I just felt completely beat up, so I decided not to run, and I'd stick it out. So my spiritual journey started then. It was very difficult. I wanted to bail all the time, but I stayed. I struggled, I stumbled, I fell many times, but I stuck it out. I found a God of my understanding that I believed, and I believed that was the only way that I would have found God because I was so dead set against him that I needed to develop a God of my understanding because the God of my understanding as a youth was very, very tainted. One of the, some of the things that I've learned in this process is to keep the focus on myself. No matter how right I feel I am, I cannot change others and trying is futile, but I can change myself. I've learned to trust. I've learned to t turn the other cheek. I've learned to love unconditionally. And from my experience at this church, to my surprise, it seems like every service, the message is directed directly at me and has transformed me from strictly spiritual faith to a Christian belief where Jesus is my savior, even though I feel like I'm still an infant in, in, in this process. I'm on a spiritual path of growth, growth and discovery. Now Linda's story. My father, he didn't want children anymore. He'd had a family already, because there's 10 years between me and my next sibling. Consequently, he was very distant from me, and it became my mission to be useful in life, to prove that I was needed. I have a simple childlike faith. Since the age of five, I attended Sunday school every week. I loved it, and sang in the choir, and learned my favorite song, Jesus Loves Me, for the Bible tells me so. This became my grounding, my anchor, and kept me alive during the times of turmoil. 
The mystery regarding religion for me was that my parents did not attend church, and I didn't understand why. I got so much out of attending. So this is my appeal to the parents out there. If a Sunday morning rolls around and you don't feel like coming, come for your children. I do believe that my mom had a connection to God and was God's warrior for me. And as a side note, I lost my mom about 35 years ago. So enjoy your parents while they're here. At the age of eight, I was molested by the school janitor. So how did I deal with the shame, the upheaval, the guilt? I reminded myself, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Through the grades of two through five, I was bullied in school. How did I deal with this? Yes, Jesus loves me, and the Bible tells me so. At the age of 10, I attempted suicide. I wanted to go be with Jesus. But God's will within me to live was stronger. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Life turned around for me when I got involved in sports. In grade 6, I accomplished the feat of playing on the grade 6, uh, the elementary school team, the junior high school team, and the senior high school team all in the same year, both basketball and volleyball. Quite a feat. I was a very busy girl that year. My family culture was to be married at 16, so I went out and got married at 16. Unfortunately, I married an alcoholic who couldn't hold down a job. So my workaholism kicked in, and I became the breadwinner. How did I deal with this? I reminded myself, yes, Jesus loves me, because the Bible tells me so. During our 15 years of marriage, we had two beautiful girls. But then my husband left me, and we divorced soon after. I was so happy to hear last week that it was an okay divorce. <laughs> How did I deal with this event? I reminded myself, yes, Jesus loves me, and the Bible tells me so. During all this time, I did have a fantastic career and was promoted up the ranks to vice president of a major corporation and was moved to Calgary with my job. But after a year of being in Calgary, I met Jordy after the move. And I'm coming into this relationship with low self-esteem and a ton of baggage. My baggage was I was an unwanted child. I didn't expect men to stay in the relationship. Working hard gives me attention. I must support myself because no one else is going to do it. I don't trust men with personal relationships or finances. And of course, I didn't unpack any of this baggage until we hit our first conflict. But what I do know for sure going into this relationship is, yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Now moving on to our story. We don't have enough time to go into everything that we have dealt with, so we are just going to provide you with a list of things that Jordy and I have lived through. <laughs> we want to do this so that if we can be of any assistance in these areas to share how we made it through, we are happy to do that. So first of all, as you might have gathered, addiction plays a major role in our lives. There's my daughter's addictions with threats to kill Jordy. There's Jordy's son's addictions. There's Jordy's own alcoholic addictions, gaming addiction. There's my food addiction and all the relapses that come with that. 
They were business issues. Jordy and his brother co-owned a business. At one point, it became too much for his brother, and he abandoned Jordy and the business and took everything with him. There are my own career issues. I was, my career was my whole life, and I got a career demotion, and I couldn't deal with that, so I had a breakdown. There was also a financial disaster. Living with financial issues for such a long time, like we had, is really hard on a relationship. Statistics say that this is the number one reason for divorce. But we have learned to separate the issues in our lives from our relationship. And then relationship issues. We had a long engagement. I was extremely adverse to marriage because my first marriage was such a train wreck. I couldn't emotionally proceed and didn't realize that for a long time. Uh, we had relationship trust in that I did not trust Linda to be faithful and Linda did not trust that I would stay in the relationship. She had abandonment issues. There was a stalemate on our different beliefs on commitment. With Linda, it was being married, the physical act, the paper. For me, it was a commitment in my heart and the paper didn't mean anything. We struggled with that for 17 years. <laughs> and the uh, blended family, we both have children from our previous relationship and they've all lived with us at one point or another. So there was, there was uh, definitely issues there. And spiritual differences. For part of our time together, I did not believe in God at all. That was a very, very sensitive issue for me. And in the latter part of our relationship, it was 12 step, step based, where Linda's uh, spiritual base was, was uh, Christian faith. Dirty and I, well, we've been through a lot of different experiences, and we have learned to trust in God's path for us. In this process, we have grown very close, and our relationship is very strong. I would venture to say that it is darn near perfect. I would like to share this verse with you, this verse I carry around with me. It's from Hebrews 12, 1-2, International Version. A huge cloud of witnesses is all around us. So let us throw off everything that stands in our way. Let us throw off any sin that holds on us too tightly. And let us keep on running the race marked out for us. Let us keep looking to Jesus. He is the one who started this journey of faith. And he is the one who completes this journey of faith. He paid no attention to the shame of the cross. He suffered there because of the joy he was looking forward to. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He made it through those attacks by sinners. So think about him. Then you won't get tired. You won't lose hope. My wish, or our wish for you, is to see the value in staying the course, to rebuild with each mountain you climb. Not only will you be building stamina with each obstacle, you'll be learning to lean on God with each step. Thank you for listening to our story. I mentioned earlier that we would love to be of service to anyone who would like to reach out to us. Let us be your Neremiah. Thank you. Thank you, Linda and Jordi. I just get choked up listening to your testimony, and in particular, the way you finished it with that verse from Hebrews 12, so powerful. I mean, these are warriors, friends. 
uh, when they talk about what they've been through, it's not theoretics, it's not just book knowledge. They have been through the valleys, they have been through the peaks. And for them to say, let us be your, be your Nehemiah, that's a drop the mic moment, so powerful. And so I want to leverage off of this whole idea here in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we, want a if we want fulfillment in life, Jesus showed us the way, and it's to live a life of serving others. There's something about serving others and getting outside ourselves that unlocks joy. It's better to give than receive. That's what Jesus said. As children of God, as ones created in God's image, we are created to give. His nature is to be ours. If we live a life of selfishness and self-absorption, there will always be something amiss inside of us, some kind of angst, like something's not right. And no matter how much we try to rejigger ourselves, more of this, more of that, buy this, chase that, strive for this, strive for that, lose weight, optimize our portfolio, check off our bucket list, Things just don't come together. The missing piece is serving. There can be no maturity in Jesus without serving. Now think about Nehemiah. Why would he give up a royal appointment? Literally in the court of the king, seeing the king every single day, being at the center of power, not just of any kingdom, but the ruling kingdom in the earth. He served King Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia. He was the cupbearer to the king. He gave up that appointment so that he could go rebuild a wall around a city that was completely desolate. The wall was approximately one kilometer in circumference. The actual city itself, archaeologists have determined to be about 135 acres. So Jerusalem was not a big city. But all of a sudden, Nehemiah was moved to leave all of that to go rebuild this wall. What would inspire anyone to do that? Why would you give up such a career with all its benefits, lifelong pension, comfort of the palace, seeing famous people, getting sneak previews of what the king is going to announce, or getting inside scoop on palace intrigue? Who does that? Only those who have a passion to serve, like Jordi and Linda. Even though Nehemiah was called to a distinctly leadership position, at his core, his, in his core was this desire, this passion to serve God, serve his people, and serve the nation. He gave up himself, his lifestyle, his comfort to go serve. Friends, that's where the joy is. Can you imagine at the end of Nehemiah's life, maybe he is thinking to himself, what would have my life have been like if I just stayed in the palace? Just continue to pour wine into the king's cup. Just enjoy the royal ambiance going into the royal cellars and deciding which vintage bottle to serve the king, wondering if it's properly chilled and if it's appropriately paired with the food that the king is going to eat. Now, of course, Nehemiah was a Jew, and so he had influence and he had access. Goodness gracious, he was seeing the king's face every single day. Yet there was more to what his life was going to be about. Nehemiah must have thought, thinking about that wall at the end of his life and how it got rebuilt in 52 days. In 52 days, this was a wall that had been broken down for 150 years. And the amount of blood, sweat, and tears, and intimidation that he had to go through to complete this project, was it worth it? It was more than worth it. 
The palace life was nothing compared to the stones and cement paste that he had to put his hands into in order to rebuild that wall. The palace life with its cool corridors and smooth marble floors were nothing compared to the hot, scorching sun of Jerusalem. The financial security of being on the king's payroll was nothing compared to the zero salary he received as the governor. He was a governor voted in by the people for 12 years. And you know what his salary was? Zero. There was nothing that could compare to serving God, his purposes, and his people. That's where the joy is. Nehemiah followed in the steps of Jesus, like we read in Mark 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You know, and as, as I was reflecting on the life that Nehemiah led, a, a deep sense of gratitude came over me because in our church, I've seen so many of you rebuilding the walls of others. You've chipped in. You've sacrificed. You've given. You've sat. You've cried. You've been there in the valley with others when they needed you. In reality, all the incredible testimonies that we've heard this summer, from dirty cops to overcoming rape, to resisting incest, to having a child out of wedlock, to facing your fears, to being abused in marriage, to overcoming being an abuser. This could not have happened without Nehemiah's in our midst. I mean, it's amazing to think about the spectrum of stories that we've heard. This is life. This, this is the grit of life. This is where the gospel meets you and me. We're not living in the stained glass building and just in this very pristine, curated environment where somehow when we leave, the gospel all of a sudden makes no sense to us. In fact, the gospel makes the most sense when we leave this place because it intersects and it comes right into how we live and the pain that we've experienced. But that doesn't happen unless there's Nehemiahs in your life. All the people that have shared, they had you. You were there to repair the breach, to go to war with them, to beat back the Sambalits and Tobias, to protect and advocate, stand with the sword and trawl in hand until their wall was repaired. Thinking on those things, I just feel very privileged to be your pastor. You make me proud. It takes a family. It takes a community. That's why I'm so touched by Jordy and Linda when they say, let us be your Nehemiah. That's an invitation to service. That's an invitation to maturity, to grow up and be there for others, to be a giver and not just a taker, to be a producer and not a consumer. That's an invitation to grow in Jesus and become more like him. God has called all of us to do our part with all our heart, to do our part with all our heart. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt, copyright that, rich gal. Every single one of you can contribute to the wall. For the wall to be rebuilt, there had to be those that sourced the rock, cut the stones, carried it to the site, mixed the paste, fetched the water, shoveled the sand, brought water to the parched workers, took inventory of the spears, gathered the shields, volunteered for the night shift, made lunches for the workers, and on and on. Every single one of us can have a part in the chain that it takes to rebuild the wall. At the end of his life, it wasn't just Nehemiah that had a life well-lived. It was also everyone else that served on that wall. They, too, died with a satisfied soul. They did their part with all their heart. So ask yourself, what is your gifting? How can you serve? How can you add value to others? How can you get off the couch? How can you give? Jordi and Linda just shared with us the incredible highs and lows that they've been through. 
They've accumulated so much life experience and wisdom, and now they're willing to pour it out on others. And I love just the authenticity of their love. This, this is not a show, right? You, you feel it. They, they have been through it together. And that friendship and that bond is so real. That's what the grace of God does, makes it real. And this is what it is to be a Christian, to give yourself away, to be a healer, an encourager, a helper, a strengthener. Now, there's a part of the richness of our faith that will always be hidden from us until we serve. This is how God has designed it. God has reserved the choicest parts, the greatest treasures, to be veiled until we become servants. I think about Kevin and Julia, and Julia's with us this morning, as in the Garrett's. For goodness sake, they were in prison for two years in China, international headlines, and they are now barred from their life's work in China after 25 years. If anyone has a right to recover, it would be them. But what do we find them doing? They're serving the nation still. They're leading teams to Myanmar. They're serving the underprivileged, the poor, the needy, the spiritually blind. What gives? Why are they doing that? Because there's nothing like serving in Jesus' name. That's the source of their secret energy and vigor. So church, the wall gets repaired because there are servants that are there to assist and volunteer. Now, what was it that made Nehemiah so successful? Number one, he cared deeply. We must be caring people. Soft-hearted, filled with compassion and love and kindness. Now remember, Nehemiah mourned for something that happened 150 years earlier, for goodness sake. Just a quick diagram for us here. Jerusalem, almost 600 years before Christ came, was completely destroyed by the ruling empire of Babylon. Completely wiped off and then deported. Total national humiliation. The worst part of it was the most sacred part of their city, the temple and the walls was broken down. Jeremiah prophesied that they would be in exile for 70 years. 70 years comes up, God moves through Ezra, and they return to Jerusalem. A small group of people return back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild just the temple part, but not the city walls. 70 years elapse after that, and now Nehemiah is touched by the Holy Spirit, and he returns to Jerusalem 150 years later to rebuild the walls. Now, how does someone care deeply for something that happened so far back? Well, he was a student of history. He was a student of the Bible. He identified with his people and their calling. And it hit him. The walls wasn't just a physical wall. It was a symbol of their relationship with God and how it was in shambles. This ought not to be. I care deeply about this situation. And so God moved on him. And as we read in chapter 1, just the agony of his soul, it says that he sat down and wept. I mourned for days and fasted before the God of heaven. This was real. This was not just, oh, that's a sad thing that happened. This guy was just wrecked. And he said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant with those who love him and keep your commandments, let your ears be attentive, open your eyes to hear the prayer of your servants. I confess the sins of our Israelites, including myself and my family's family, 
and what they have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commandments, decrees, and laws that you gave to your servant Moses. This humbling, this humiliation, this confession was all born of care. There's no motivation without caring about something. Apathy is the greatest, the biggest enemy of serving others because if you don't care, you don't rise up. The more the world can make you apathetic, distracted, diverted, the more the enemy neutralizes you from being a blessing. Oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to help out. That's too inconveniencing. Oh, that's going to cost me time and money. That's too messy. I don't want to get involved. It's all apathy that gets entrenched and calcified in our lives, and then it keeps us from doing anything. Exactly what the enemy wants, and exactly what robs us of our witness as a church. But if we care deeply, it begins to motivate us. So realize, identify, name apathy, and don't let it come into your life. Stamp it out like stomping out cockroaches in the kitchen. In fact, caring is what makes us distinctive as Christians. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the ultimate expression of care. Jesus said a new commandment as in, oh, you mean an 11th commandment? Are you adding to the Torah? Are you adding to the Mosaic law? He's saying to his disciples, listen, there is one overarching commandment that's greater, more profound, more deep, and will lift you up as a community to help the world see that you are truly of me, that you are a caring people filled with love. Jesus said in the last days, and we're living in the last days, and we can see it ourselves. I don't even have to share this with you, but it says in the last days, the hearts of men will grow cold. The violence that we have that's out there, the, the indifference, the passivity, just the sheer coldness, the love of men is growing cold. But God has called us to warm hearts, caring hearts, kind hearts. Colossians 3, those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Ephesians 4, Paul says again, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. And let's not forget the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a commandment to care. And where do we get the fuel for the second greatest commandment? From the first greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, who then pours care into our hearts so that we can care for others. You are blessed to be a blessing. Second thing that made Nehemiah so successful was that he was moved to action. Of course you're moved to action. If you care deeply, if you're burdened about something, it motivates you. Intention without execution in the end is nothing. And as we heard from Jordi and Linda, prayer must come first, but it must be balanced with, a, must be balanced with action. What if Nehemiah cried his tears, mourned deeply, and then did nothing? We have to have works. Not works that save us, because we're saved by grace, but works that express our faith. This is what the book of James is all about. So think of ways to activate yourself, to act on your intention, to do something about what's in your heart for God and for others. Nehemiah was successful also because he lived by the playbook. 
I've shared before that there are actually two walls that were repaired by Nehemiah. Chapters 1 through 6, that's the physical wall. That's the metaphor. That's the, what we've been preaching out of. But there's also a spiritual wall, chapters 7 through 14. I hope if you haven't already done it, please read the entire book. You can do it in one sitting. Pull out your journal, write down insights, write down notes. But chapter 7 to 14 is about how Nehemiah repaired the spiritual wall of the Jewish people. It wasn't enough just to rebuild the actual wall. The spiritual wall was as important, if not more important. The Jewish people, they had fallen away. They had forgotten the word of God. They were living in such compromise. They didn't know the Torah. They didn't know the commandments. They didn't know the ordinances. They didn't know that they were supposed to observe the Sabbath, that they were not supposed to charge interest to their compatriots, that they weren't supposed to be involved in mixed marriages and intermarrying with all the heathen races that were around them, bringing in all sorts of weird customs and wooing them away from the worship of Jehovah. Chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, powerful chapters for you to read but how the people came under conviction as they heard the word of God, as Ezra and all the translators and teachers made it understood to the people. Nehemiah lived by the playbook and he vigorously turned the people back to truth. And I don't know if you caught that phrase from Jordi and Linda's testimony, how we need Nehemiah's in our life to speak the truth and love to us. We need the truth. We need the truth. Truth is not relative. It's not this one reference point that keeps moving and we get to move it around however we want it. The church has to stand up for this. This is an enduring, everlasting word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what won't pass away? The word of God. There may come a time where we have to really stand up for our faith, be willing to be persecuted, ridiculed, be demoted, I don't know. I pray it won't happen. Rather, I hope that there will be a revival and a return to the matchless, timeless Word of God. Beloved, you must love the Word of God with everything that you've got. You've got to study it, ponder it, get revelation from it, and obey it. The culture wars that are out there just makes me drop my head in sadness because it shows how far people are removed from the Word of God. And on top of it, I hear so many Christians advocating for things that are completely contrary to the Bible. I just become so grieved. You don't know your word. You're a follower of Jesus. You're more vested in your opinions than the life-giving word of God. You need to get back. We need to get back to the word as fast as we can, as quickly as we can, and be urgent about it. Nehemiah was successful because he had a spirit of determination. Oh my goodness. If you didn't catch that from Jordi and Linda, it's so easy to throw in the towel, to give in, to exit, to say I'm out of here. The Bible says in the last days that men will be filled with dissipation. We are so stressed out. We have such a hard time coping. Our drinking and our addictions of all kinds Young kids that are overdosing on opioids. Why? This is a total, it's, a, it's such a disaster that young kids, teenagers, have to be exposed to this kind of stress at such a young age, and they're finding refuge in all their drugs and everything else. It requires great determination to overcome. Reread chapters 4 and 6 and how Nehemiah 
just beat back the attacks from the Ammonites and the Arab leaders. Jesus was the greatest overcomer to ever live. Perseverance is no fun. Endurance is painful. But until we go to heaven, we prevail by being overcomers. Nehemiah didn't stop until the job was done. And you know what? If you're on a God assignment, sometimes that means that God will do something at mock speed. The wall got rebuilt in 52 days after it was in disrepair for 150 years. That's what our God can do. Nothing is impossible with God. I mean, actually, we just baptized Jordy last year, and here he is now testifying, and he's teaching about marriage and how to be successful. Is that a turnaround story? Is that a testimony of how God can move fast and deep? But we have to be in the game and willing to leave it all on the field. Don't be a quitter. Finish your course. And here's this beautiful nugget about how to be a finisher. Chapter 5, verse 7. In the NASB, the scripture says of Nehemiah, I consulted with myself. You know, there's sometimes you don't have a team. You don't have people around you. You just consult with yourself. That's how it says it in the New American Standard. In the NIV, it doesn't quite say it the same way. But sometimes there's no one to give you the right words at the right time. Sometimes you need to consult yourself and say, I can do this. I will do it. It doesn't matter. I'm going to finish the race. For those of you who are tennis fans, recently uh, Novak Djokovic won Wimbledon, beating Roger Federer. I mean, these are two Hall of Fame tennis stars, just amazing tennis players. But as they were playing, the Wimbledon crowd was all cheering for Federer, 14,000 people, probably including all the royals. And so after Novak won, Djokovic won, the press was interviewing him, saying, how did you deal with all the crowds rooting for the other guy? And he said, you know, that's a good question, because at times you try to ignore it, which is quite hard. However, he said, I'd like to, and this is his word, transmutate it in a way. When the crowd is chanting, Roger, I hear Novak. It sounds silly, but it is like that. I try to convince myself that it's like that. Sometimes you have to talk to yourself. Sometimes you have to say, you know what? They want me to lose. They can't wait for Roger to win, but actually they're cheering for me. Sometimes we have to consult ourselves. Sometimes we have to be our own coach because there aren't coaches around us. Now, of course, I'm not preaching against team. I'm not preaching against coaches or mentors in our life. But there comes pivotal points when we're in the Garden of Gethsemane and even our best of friends are falling asleep and we have to do business ourselves with God. The Bible says that when David was at Ziklag and they all wanted to stone him, it says David strengthened himself in the Lord. The very ones that he was depending on, they were wanting to kill him. They felt betrayed, but he knuckled down and says, I'm here with you, God. Have you called me or not? Am I going to be king or not? Is there a destiny I have to fulfill or not? No one else sees it, but God, I'm strengthening myself in you. Nehemiah had many of those moments where he had to consult with himself. That consultation was in the Holy of Holies. That consultation was before the throne of God. There are times even in this church, developing this church, as we've grown it over the years, where I said, you know what? It's all on me. I've had to say to Mimi, you know what? If everyone leaves, if everything goes south, it's still on me. We have to have some spiritual timber. We have to have some spiritual strength. Let's be those who are the strongest and not the weakest, 
strongest not because of our own strength, but because of the grace of God and the power of God in our lives. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over. And you will liberate yourself and you will gain the strength that you need. Last point. What made Nehemiah so successful was his bottom line was to serve people. The most famous words in the book of Nehemiah is in chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. How many people have heard this? One of the most famous verses actually in all of the Bible. Did you know that it came from Nehemiah? Where did Nehemiah get this revelation? That the joy of God, that emotional connection, that emotional reality of joy and happiness. Have you ever gotten a promotion and you want to go home and you want to tell your wife that, hey, we got a, a great salary increase and there's nothing that can undermine your mood because you're so happy and you just feel this rush and you feel so excited. That's what the joy of God does for us. God wants to give it to us. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Nehemiah got this revelation from serving. Joy comes from serving. Life comes from serving. Maturity comes from serving. Impact and satisfaction. And as I entitled my serving, serving is being grown up. So that's the call of the gospel. That's one of the things that comes out to us from the book of Nehemiah. Not just that our walls get repaired, but that as God has been a Nehemiah to us, we get to be a Nehemiah to someone else. And in that, in that service, in that caring for others and serving others, there is the joy of the Holy Spirit that will fill our soul.